You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So, debt in the Bible is slavery. And uh, I think that there's this weird thing that happens. We're so uncomfortable with the word slave in the Bible that we don't usually notice that it's, uh, it's actually not a racial or an ethnic term. It's an economic one. And if you pay a little bit more attention to it, you'll realize that many of us actually fit the definition of slave in the Bible, which always makes me uncomfortable. And the idea that there are people who would spend most of their lives working to pay off debts, which is to say we're spending most of our lives working to pay off car loans and credit card loans and student loans and home loans. In other words, we're working really hard to fill other people's pockets. The Old Testament would call that slavery. And so the Bible would say, do everything you can to avoid that kind of slavery. Do everything you can to avoid debt. But, since you probably won't succeed, there's this mechanism in the Old Testament. This crazy revolutionary idea that God comes up with called Yovel. And it occurs because God commands it. But the weird thing is the people of Israel maybe never practice it or rarely practice it, so it's almost like a theory or an idea that God commands. But every 49 years, the 50th year is the year of Yovel, declared, and all slaves go free. All captives get released. All prisoners walk out of jail. Everyone in debt gets all of their debt canceled. And this is radical in ways that you would have trouble understanding. If you own a house and you sold your house, you get your house back. If you, because of bad decisions or, well, horrible economic circumstances in the time and the culture, have lost a lot of things, all of those things come back to you. Likewise, if you bought somebody's car because they fell on hard times, they get their car back. Everyone's assets return to the original owner. All haves and have-nots get leveled out. Everybody goes back to zero. Privilege gets erased. And the Old Testament kind of translators in the King James Version of the Bible, they didn't know what to do with this, and so they had to make up a word. And the word they made up sounds a little bit like the Hebrew word, and it's jubilee. This is called the year of jubilee. And it's this amazing thing. And when the word makes it into the rest of the English language, what happens is, we start using it not just to describe this Old Testament idea, but the way it would feel if you were free. The way it would feel if suddenly all of your debt was canceled, if everything that was on your back, all of this oppressive kind of stuff that you've stuck yourself in with bad situations, that the world has stuck on you because of bad situations, suddenly was removed. And it's this incredible, amazing thing that the people of Israel almost never practiced. But in English, when we use the word jubilee and jubilation, we're remembering that idea, if it perfectly. And Jesus loved the idea. When Jesus shows up in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, the very beginning, he walks into a synagogue, and he picks up a Bible, and he turns to the place in Isaiah that talks about Yovel, and he goes, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom for prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yovel. And then he sits down with no explanation. And everybody in the room is kind of looking at him. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. That's, yeah, I just did that. That was jubilee. 
Like you just sort of declared it in that moment. I fulfilled the prophecy right there. You guys were here. You saw it. And everyone's curious and they're asking questions. And the more Jesus talks, the more curious they are. But pretty quickly they want to kill him. And they want to kill him because it completely undermines the way we usually do business. Completely changes the way we tell our story and the way that the world works. Forgiveness has a way of changing stories. Getting rid of debt has a way of changing the story. And that's what we're talking about today. We're continuing that series Lynn mentioned called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And we've been going through the Lord's Prayer line by line. So this is Matthew 6, if you want to follow along. Open a Bible or a phone. Always good to actually have a Bible when you come to Matthew 6, starting at verse 7. We're going to read the whole thing, but we're just going to focus on part of it. Matthew 6, starting at verse 7. When you are praying, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, our Father in Heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in Heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Thursday, I went into a Chase Bank. And I was wearing a mask, and I talked to the lady behind the glass, and I say, very respectful, can I please speak with the manager? So she leads me into a little room, and I end up chatting with the manager, and we make small talk for a little bit. And he says, so what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm, you know, such and such, and I have account number such and such. And he looks me up in the system, and he goes, yep, here we go, got you right here. And I go, as you can probably see, we owe you some money. And he says, yeah. And I say, I just want to say, I'm really sorry about that. Seems confused, and I said, "No, it's, it's, uh, that's that's all right." And I go, "No, no, no, it's not all right." And I just, I really want to apologize, and I want to say that I hope you can forgive my debts. And he gives me a very blank look. <laughs> what? And I go, and "The thing is, I was really hoping that if I were to apologize sincerely, that you could forgive my debts." And I was hoping that that's something we could maybe take care of today. <laughs> Sir, that's, that's not how debt works. Hmm. Now, I didn't really have great hope that my debt would be forgiven, but I thought it was worth a shot. <laughs> the Bible talks about it, why wouldn't we ask? Yes. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It would set a precedent, right? I'm sure this guy actually has some debts that maybe he would like forgiven. This would be a good step, I think, along the way to forgiving debts. But the problem is that's not the way that debt works. Right? Debt isn't something that's forgiven. Debt's something that has to be paid for. That's how debt works. And Jesus doesn't use a religious term when he talks about his prayer. He talks about forgiveness. He uses an economic one. He has religious terms. Words like trespasses and iniquities and failures and flaws and sins. But he doesn't use those. Instead, he uses the word debt. And in doing that, he gives us a revolutionary understanding of sin and forgiveness. Because sin creates debt. And that's something I think everybody knows especially if you've ever sort of experienced it, like if somebody sinned against you. 
that sin is this religious word in the Bible, the, the quick explanation of what it means for this week of It's um, <clears throat> you do something wrong or you don't do something wrong. And either way, the doing or the not doing causes harm. Whether you even know that there's harm or not, that harm exists. We have a way of not knowing what the consequences of our actions will be sometimes. And there's more to sin than that, but that's actually a quick, practical understanding. And so if somebody sins against you, they've hurt you in some significant way. You're aware of that hurt, and it's hard to let go of. In fact, it's usually the kind of thing that we have an excellent memory for, because we have an excellent memory for debt. And it's why that phrase, forgive and forget, is so popular in our time and in our culture. And nobody really knows that that doesn't come from the Bible. That comes from Cervantes, who's writing in the 1500s to describe an extremely naive character in his book, a guy who doesn't understand the way that the world works. The Bible would not tell you to forgive and forget. And that's important, because some of us would say, well, I mean, forgiveness, right? Like, if, if a woman were abused by her husband, would we really say that she should move back in with that husband as though nothing will happen to you? No. That kind of amnesia is bad. That will lead to more harm in your life. But the flip side is, should that woman live the rest of her life as a victim? Should she be controlled by this story even though that person is no longer in her life? Wouldn't that be a weird way of giving him power over you? If a person were in a business discussion with somebody and has been betrayed by that person many times, should he enter into a multi-million dollar deal with that guy again? No. That would be a bad kind of amnesia. The Bible has lots of problems with that kind of thinking. But should that guy live the rest of his life in cynicism and bitterness, unable to make other business transactions just because he's been hurt by somebody else? <coughs> if you loan your lawnmower to somebody and they've broken it three times, should you loan them your lawnmower again? Probably not, maybe, but probably not. But every time you see them, should you be consumed with bitterness and anger about this person and how they consistently break your lawnmower? How no matter how nice you are to them, they just, and they don't even care and they don't even apologize and they never pay for it. That seems like a really brutal way to live your life. We have an excellent memory for debt. Excellent memory. We know who hurt us. We know when they hurt us. We know where they hurt us. We know how much it costs. We know what they owe. And it's a story we tend to tell again and again and again. A story that has an uncomfortable way of defining us. And Jesus is trying to let us change our story. But forgiveness is the only way to change that story. And the problem is we, we sort of, we like this kind of debt because it, it gives us a little bit of power over this other person. It lets us say, well, I'm, I'm a victim and they've done me wrong. And that's, that's the one thing I have that I can say that I... I was hurt, and they're the one that hurt me. And so we hang on to that story. And Jesus is trying to teach us to let it go. To let it go. To forget the debt. Not the action, but the debt. To let the slate go clean. To no longer have the grudge, the grievance, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness. Look how many words we have for the thing. What we're describing underneath it all is debt. These are just the ways we feel about that particular debt. And some of us think that we're really good at forgetting about these things. But there's a guy named Dr. Frederick Leskin who works at the Stanford Forgiveness Project. He does interpersonal psychology and uh, did a lot of work actually with the IRA and the Catholics and the Protestants in the 1980s. And he gives us kind of a checklist. And uh, if you would pull out some of these, so these are some questions that you might want to think about on whether or not there's some debt out there that somebody owes you. Have you told your story more than twice to the same person, that grievance story, that grudge story. 
you're playing events that happen more than two times a day in your mind. You find yourself speaking to the person who hurt you, even when that person is not there. Have you made a commitment to yourself to tell the story without being upset and found yourself unexpectedly agitated? Is the person who hurt you the central character in your story? When you tell this story, does it remind you of other painful things that have happened to you? Does your story focus primarily on your pain and what you have lost? In your story, is there a villain? Have you, have you made a commitment to yourself not to tell your story again and then broken your back? Do you look for other people with similar problems to tell your story to? Has your story stayed the same? Have you checked the details of your story? Forgiveness always sounds like a great idea in theory. Great idea in theory, but whenever it gets specific, we get angry. Whenever somebody would dare ask me to let go of my debt, they owe me. Whenever somebody would dare ask me to do something like that, we start to get very upset and there's a massive amount of resistance. I say this as a Christian. He would say that as somebody who's not a Christian. LearningToForgive.com, by the way, details the scientific exploration of forgiveness. Fascinating idea. We have ex-boyfriends and girlfriends. We know what they did. We have people who betrayed us. We know what they've done. We have those little injustices that happen in marriages all the time. And they, the, the list kind of gets longer over time. I never see these get shorter. We have those deep grudges in our families and our lives. We have those splits that seem to exist that we can't seem to let go of. We have this sort of like distance between us and other people, and who knows how it really started, who really remembers. But we do have people we ghost on a regular basis, who ghost us on a regular basis. We have an excellent memory for death. Jesus has given us a way out of death. There's a New Testament commentator named Adolf Schlatter, and he says, now, there can be no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of the forgiver. As if a revenge-seeking heart could believe in God's forgiveness of sins. I'm going to read that again because it's really good. There is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. As if a revenge-seeking heart could believe in God's forgiveness of sins. We know that forgiveness is good for us. We like the idea of it. It's just very hard to do. Or we live in a culture that fights against it. We live in a cancel culture, for sure. We see it all the time. It happens to celebrities and public figures. It also happens to normal people, which is weird when you think about it. Because we live in a culture where everything's allowed. Things that might have been considered immoral 5, 10, 50 years ago are fine. But there are still unforgivable sins, and there's no mechanism for forgiveness in our culture. If you did the wrong thing 30 years ago, we're coming for you. If the wrong sentence comes out of your mouth five years ago, and it's recorded, and it goes viral, it will destroy you. And we see this, and sometimes we even cheer it on. We go, that guy's a monster. That woman is a monster. We know that the same thing happens in politics. Three days from now, there's an election in this country, and there are absolutely people, hopefully not in this room, who would consider it an unforgivable sin to be a Trump voter. There are absolutely people, hopefully not in this room, who would consider it an unforgivable sin to be a Biden voter. 
There are absolutely people who consider it unfavorable sin to not vote. Three days from now, an election will happen in this country, and you would think that that would be the end of the conversation, and I think we're all quite confident that we will still be talking about the story that we have long past Tuesday. The guy I mentioned, Dr. Frederick Luskin, who worked with the Irish Catholics and Protestants who were blowing each other up in the 1980s, he compares our time to that time. He says, I see an uncomfortable number of similarities in the way that we talk about our enemies in this time. And we know that the Christians are absolutely wrapped up in it. Absolutely wrapped up in it. This is to say nothing, by the way, of just the, the small ways in which a lack of forgiveness can be bad for us. We know that it destroys marriages. Absolutely. Right? That list of grievances I mentioned that just seems to get trotted out periodically in conversations and it grows every single time. We know that it's really bad for our family relationships. We know that it's toxic for children. We know that witnessing it or participating in it is a really dangerous thing. And we know, actually, that it's bad for our bodies. That it's bad for our hearts, literally. It's bad for your blood pressure. You will die faster if you cannot forgive people. Absolutely, it's bad for your nervous system. Jesus is offering us something that is good for us at every level. Physically, interpersonally, societally, and absolutely spiritually. You and I, we keep writing these sort of receipts, these, these things. We, we know that people are out there and they're writing our reviews and, and we're hanging on to every single one of them and it starts to bury us. And we can't seem to deal with it. We're getting crushed the weight of all the debt that everybody owes us. Frederick Buechner had said in one of his books, Anger. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. <laughs> to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations. <laughs> to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain that you're given and the pain that you are given back. In many ways, it is a feast for a king. The chief drawback is what you're wolfing down is yourself. <clears throat> the skeleton of the feast is you. There can be no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of the forgiver. And Jesus is the one who forgives sins. And Jesus is also this God that we've been praying about all through the series. The God whose name is holy, the God whose kingdom is coming, the God whose will is going to be done. Jesus is this God that we consistently lift up our prayers to. Jesus is the God we can trust with all these IOUs, all the debt that we've accumulated over the years. We can hand it off to him, and we can trust this great God of justice who sees all these things will not actually let rapists go free, will not actually let war criminals get away with it, actually sees all of the little injustices we experience in traffic on a regular basis, actually sees what happens in those secret gossipy rooms at the office where people are talking crap about us, actually sees the ways in which we deal with one another and the ways in which other people deal with us. There is a God who actually sees all of that. And because we believe this, we can hand all of this lack of forgiveness, all of this debt over to God. We can trust him with it. Because we know that he'll do justice. That's what we've been praying about for weeks. We know that he will do justice. He can set us free from our own well, debtors, the people who owe us. Weirdly, is a kind of slavery that we find ourselves in. We think that we've got power over them, but strangely, it's the story that has power over us. Keeps us in this position of being a victim, keeps us from being able to move on, keeps us from intimacy and forgiveness and all the things we actually want in life. 
Jesus sets us free from that by taking that onto himself. But because we know he sees those things, we know that we need forgiveness. Because we know that we are not actually perfect people who occasionally get wronged by others. Right? We're not just victims in this world. We actually are victimizers a lot of the time. We get caught up in cycles of abuse and being abused. In fact, a lot of the reasons we don't want to forgive people is deep down we really like to do some damage. Think about the way you feel in traffic when somebody cuts you off. I really hope that guy gets to a car accident. I really love to hit him with my car. And that's just a simple thing. You're like, that's crazy. That would cost me too much money. But the problem isn't I would hurt him. The problem is I don't want to pay for my car later. I could die. That's the real issue. We think about these things, and the truth is sometimes we say, well, I'm a pretty good person. And, you know, I think God knows that I'm doing my best. And the Christian story is not one in which you're a pretty good person and you're doing your best. In fact, most of the time when you say, I'm a pretty good person, what you really mean is I've looked around and I see some people I don't think very much of. I'm better than those people. And so what you're really doing is a kind of comparative righteousness where you say those people are bad people and I'm amazing, which pretty quickly will show you how bad a person you are. You're practicing self-righteousness. And the story of Christianity is one in which we say, well, you know, even with my best of intentions, even with the best context in the world, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I've got a lot of debt out there that I really hope never gets called in. I hope nobody ever catches that in because I know I've done some serious damage to people in the world. I read that list from before, and I'm immediately convicted of the stories that I tell myself when I'm alone in my room. I'm immediately convicted of the fact there are undoubtedly people who could say my name in stories. And Jesus, when he comes, comes to people who need forgiveness. Comes to people who are in desperate need of becoming right with God. That's what the cross is all about. Canceling debt. But not just forgiving it. Paying for it. Because debt is not something that's forgiven. Debt is something that's paid for and then forgive it. But if you and I have had our debts paid for, then we should find it very easy to forgive the debts of other people. Because we know the God whom we follow. We know the God that was willing to give his life for us. And that a violent death on a cross for us. And when he has paid our debt to that crazy degree, we know that the little things that other people owe us just don't compare. Jesus literally tells a story about this in Matthew 18. So later in the same gospel, you can turn there if you want. It's the beginning of Matthew 18. He says, look, the kingdom of God, it's like if a guy is a slave, and that slave owes $4.5 million, and all of a sudden, it's like time to pay. And the guy shows up, and he goes, yeah, I don't have the money. <laughs> and the, the, the master looks at him, and he says, you know what, have patience with me. Um, I, I will pay you. And no one in that story thinks that guy's got $4.5 million coming. And the master doesn't just say, okay, you work that off. He says, you know what, I'm going to pay the debt. And you're free. And the guy walks out being forgiven $4.5 million. And then in the street later that day, he sees a dude who owes him 10 grand, which is a lot of money. And immediately forgets that his debt was forgiven grabs the guy by the throat who says, please be patient with me, I'll pay you, and he says, no, and throws him in prison. Now, does the guy who's been forgiven understand forgiveness? No. Does he understand the concept of debt? No. Is he thinking about his forgiveness in economic terms? The crazy amount to which he's been forgiven and the tiny IOU? No. Does he realize that his debtor actually really is just owing this other guy now? 
Because if you've been given four and a half million dollars, anybody who owes you anything is that guy. What do you think happens when the master finds out about the story? Jesus says. What do you think happens when he finds out about what you did with the mercy you were given? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now that as can make it sound conditional. As though what Jesus is saying is, if you won't forgive people, I won't forgive you. And it can sound that way, but the more you read the Bible, the more you realize that there's nothing about forgiveness that's conditional. It's while we were yet sinners that Christ dies for us. Long before we ever thought of apologizing or wanting forgiveness, that's when Jesus dies. When you guys and I are still actively going, screw you, man. He's like, I think you're worth dying for. That's the amazing thing about the grace of Jesus Christ. So it's not a conditional thing. There's nothing we do to earn or to gain the love, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. By definition, forgiveness is something that cannot be conditional. But there's a very real sense in which Jesus is equating our ability to forgive with our understanding of our debt and what has happened to it. If you are still clinging to the debt that other people owe you and still insisting that they pay you, then your understanding of your own debt is that someone needs to be paid. And paid in full. And you can't hang on to the debt that other people owe you without also hanging on to your own debt. It becomes very, very difficult to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, if you are unwilling to actually forgive your debtors. If you're unwilling to well, allow for the fact that sometimes debts are paid for and overpaid for by the God that's what Jesus does for us. And so when we pray this prayer, we pray it alongside our enemies, Jesus teaches us. Forgive us our debts. Those people are also praying with us. We pray alongside the people who have wronged us. Forgive us our debts. We are united, unfortunately, with this sort of debtor-creditor system that we live in. And we trust that there is a God who at some point is just going to declare jubilee. Everybody goes back to zero. All debts are canceled. Everybody's free. You get to go home. And that, if that's precious and amazing to you and a vision for the future that you desperately want for yourself, that you desperately want for your marriage, that you desperately want for your relationships right now, that you desperately want for your life, that is something you can get in Jesus Christ today. Full stop. Today. And you go, I believe in Jesus. That's probably happened to me. That's why he offers us this prayer. That's why he teaches us this prayer, that we pray it again and again and again. Because you probably are going to need to ask for forgiveness again, and you're probably going to need to learn to forgive people again. Jesus understands our big issues, and one of our biggest issues is forgiveness. At the center of the gospel is forgiveness. This amazing offer that a guy who is truly victim and never victimizer, truly abused and never abuser, dies for us. And when he comes back, we find out that all of that debt wasn't enough to crush him. And that he actually can lead us through death, to a new way forward, to a new kind of life, to a new way of dealing with one another. One in which we forgive as we have been forgiven on the cross. In 2019, last year, May 19th, uh, 396 lives were changed. Uh, this was a, a graduation that happened at a historically black college and university in Morehouse. I don't know if you've heard about this. So May 19th, last year, the commencement speaker gets up and it's Robert F. Smith. He's one of the wealthiest black men in the world. Maybe the wealthiest. He's worth about $5 billion. And he stands up and he's giving a commencement speech. He's doing a great job. You know, classic kind of 
you're going to do this and call your mom and stuff like that. The stuff that you get in great commencement speeches. <laughs> and somewhere toward the end of it, he goes, and you're going to live this life and you're going to be these people and I want to put a little fuel in your tank. And my family has decided that we're going to pay your debts. Now, people who've been listening respectfully and clapping and cheering, at that moment, there's this silence. And he says, yeah, we're going to establish a grant that's going to pay off all of your students. And the crowd goes nuts. Because who cares what else he's saying? <laughs> oh my gosh, my debt is canceled? Are you for real? By the way, that cost is probably around $10 million. Tuition at Morehouse is about $40,000 a year. The average student had about 10 grand in debt. There was one guy in particular who talked about it after the fact. He said, not only does this donation help create generational wealth, but it inspires people to give back. The fact that I know somebody who paid off $98,000 of my student loans makes me just want to go out and give to people even more than I did before. The fact that I know somebody who paid my debt makes me want to go out into the world and live very differently. Robert Smith, in the midst of his graduation speech, after he's already made the announcement, he goes, this is my class. My class. I have paid their debts. They belong to me. And I expect each and every one of them to pay this forward, which is a classic kind of secular way of talking about what it looks like when debt has been forgiven. What do we do with that debt in the future? It's an economic thing, forgiveness. It changes the story completely. He changed the story of 396 people with that forgiveness. And we have been forgiven so much more debt. $98,000 is nothing. Nothing compared to the debt that has been forgiven us in Jesus Christ the one who went to the cross and died for us. The God of the universe who gave his only son so that you and I might not perish, but have everlasting life in Christ. That's what we pray for when we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We pray that God would change our story. Uh, there are some uh, steps to forgiveness that I think are worth talking about really quickly. Uh, this is uh, sort of stolen slash modified from the guy, Dr. Frederick Blessing. Um, my brother and sister in law interviewed him on a podcast recently. Okay, it's well worth your time. We'll throw the links up somewhere. So, this is modified because he's not necessarily a Christian. But the first thing you want to do is you really want to forgive something. Uh, talk about what happened and how you feel about it. It's actually worth knowing the story and knowing exactly what the debt is to be uh, Number two, remember that most of the problem you're currently experiencing comes from the memory of the hurt, which is the debt rather than the actual event. Especially if this is something that happened years and years ago. Something you're hanging on to rather than the actual thing itself. Number three, take three deep breaths and focus on your body. Because the thing is, the first two things are going to make you angry. They're going to help you relive that hurt immediately. And it's worth paying attention to the way your body moves. Number four, pray the Lord's Prayer. Number five, ask God for justice. And know that He gives it. Number six, ask God for forgiveness. Not for yourself, but for this person. Again, when Jesus teaches us to pray this way, forgive us our debts, he's actually teaching us to pray about our difficulty forgiving other people. We bring it to God. Number seven, remember how much Jesus loves you, how much grace he has for you. Some good practical steps for forgiving our debts in the same way that we've been forgiven. This isn't a theory. 
This isn't some hypothetical thing. We need to become people who are truly transformed by the forgiveness of God's grace, the forgiveness of our debts, the amazing thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we show up to things like this and we listen and go, man, that was really cool, that story about a guy graduating with the debt. We forget, actually, that God's calling us out of the world to be people who do forgive as we have been forgiven. Who change the story, not just of our own lives, but of people out there in the world. And when they ask why it is that we're so good at being gracious, we always point back to the debt that we've been forgiven. We always point back to what God has done for us in Christ. Forgiveness changes the story, friends. It can change your story today. It changes my story periodically. I hope that God will continue to do this great work in me the way he does it. Forgive us our debts. If you pray with me, Lord Jesus.